This episode of The Candid Frame is sponsored by the Charcoal Book Club. Working with the most respected names in contemporary photography, Charcoal selects and delivers essential photo books to a worldwide community of collectors. Each month, members receive a signed first edition monograph and an exclusive print to add to their collections. Join the club by visiting charcoalbookclub.com and use the promo code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. We also have the support of LensRentals.com, the largest online camera rental house in the U.S. They carry the most popular brands and models of cameras, lenses, and anything else you need for video, lighting, post-processing, and more. Whether you need something for a one-time assignment or want to test it out before you buy, LensRentals.com is there to help. Explore their extensive inventory and save 10% on your first order when you sign up for their newsletter at LensRentals.com forward slash newsletter. The legendary photographer Gordon Parks famously described his decision to wield a camera as his choice of weapons. He decided to use his camera as a means for combating racism, discrimination, and injustice. Brazilian photographer Joao Veloso uses his camera in much the same way. He uses his photographs to shed light on economic disparity, deforestation, and urban violence in his native country. His current work on scorched earth policies in the Amazon demonstrates how a single person can make a difference for his community and the world. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Yeah, I'm glad uh, we finally were able to get together. You've been, you know, traveling, working on, on your project. Yeah. And it's been fascinating to, you know, to, to spend time learning about you and, and, and your work. But but I'd like to get started with just talking a little bit about where you're based and, and maybe uh, where you're from, which is uh, Penombro. Pernambuco. <laughs> I am not I'm, I'm not I'm striking out in terms of Portuguese pronunciation. But were you born in that in that, in that region? Yeah, yeah. I'm from a, a place called Caruaru, which is a very wonderful city. Uh, I'm from a, a semi-desert region of Brazil. It's called Agreste. It's a place that only rains like uh, 80 days each year. I'm I'm a son of the the desert by doing by saying so. When I was uh, around six, seven, I moved to the coastline, uh, the, to the state capital called the Recife, which is literally Brazilian, the Portuguese uh, word for a coral reef. So it's Recife. And I've been living here for the last 20 years <laughs> of my life. It's, a, it's an amazing region. It's on, on the Brazilian Northeast. We are one of the most poor parts of the country, but we are also like really resilient. And for me, this is what makes us really amazing. <laughs> and it has a rich history from what I was reading, because it was the first area that was inhabited by the Portuguese when they came over. Yeah, yeah. Actually, the Portuguese, they came to a state on the south of the region of the northeast called Bahia, but we don't like them here in Pernambuco. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but Recife and Pernambuco were actually the, the the first 
uh, nation in South America to get independent in the early uh, 1800s. We actually, we declared independence from Brazilian empire and we were like a country, we abolished slavery, we were recognized by the United States and England. Actual, uh, the United States actually sent some troops to help us, but they didn't arrive on time. Yeah. And then we were annexed to, to the Brazilian Empire again. Then we tried to be independent like four times again after that. And so we, we still have a buff with the rest of the country because we, we, we truly believe that we're not Brazilians. We are, we are Pernambucanos. So yes, it's, it's filled with, with history and, uh, you know, it's a, I think that, that it's a privilege to be born here because you get to be connected with the land in a very specific way. Like we, we are proud of who we are. We are proud of our accents. We are proud of, the, of everything that comes from here. It's very easy to, to spot a Pernambucano that it's the, who is outside Pernambuco because we will probably be wearing a flag in any part of our body. We have like these hats with the flag. We have these uh, t-shirts, pants. You're gonna, we, we probably have a tattoo with something from Pernambuco. We are like really, really proud of who we are. <laughs> and we have like really, really stupid titles. Like we have the lo uh, longest straight line uh, avenue in the planet. It's like we have, yeah, really? yeah, and it, it doesn't make any sense because who who else is going to be proud of having like this really long avenue, right? <laughs> we have like, uh, yeah, we have like the, of course, the we have the biggest carnival uh, party in the planet. Like we have every year uh, before the pandemic, we was we used to put like. Uh, 2.6 million people at the same spot in one day, in the first day of the carnival. It's the, the Galo da Madrugada block. It's a, it's a very famous stuff. Yeah, but in general, I'm, I'm a proud Pernambucano and I'm proud of uh, where I come from. Like, it's, it's a big part of who I am. And yeah. <laughs> you, you mentioned that it's a... Uh, uh a region suffers from a lot of unemployment and unemployment in, in, in poverty. How has the, you know, the recession that's been, that started, I think about maybe 10 years ago, combined with the, the, the pandemic, how has that impacted the region as compared to say the rest of Brazil? During the, the 2000s, um, the, the president Lula, he's from here, he's from my state, he's a Pernambucano too. And his model of development which was based on building stuff and making and giving access to people to buy stuff. It was like helped Pernambuco a lot. So we have like this, we built this shipyard that would create many jobs. We got like really, really great investments here. But uh, with the crisis, especially at the, the national oil company Petrobras, many of the contracts for this shipyard they were canceled and that hit really hard the people here because we raised an entire generation to be to be working on the oil industry so we had like thousands of, of pernambucanos who are oil technicians who are drilling technicians who are naval welder uh welders and they are all prepared to be working in this industry that does not exist anymore here 
and that created like uh, uh, like a snowball because this youth that was now un unemployed they well they started uh, well they used the drugs because you know drugs is something that a lot of people use and uh, when you have money you can pay for that and when you don't you cannot pay for that then you you need to start working for the drug traffickers so you can pay your debts well that got like we are violent okay people in Pernambuco we are we have we are you know from our history of independence wars of revolution uh, revolutions we we have like this really hot blood normally in the 90s Pernambuco and Recife which is the state capital was elected the seventh worst city in the planet for for living <laughs> and we uh -huh. we came a long way from that we came a long way from that we are now like we have this we are we have really amazing universities uh the state university which is a, which is public and for free was uh i believe it was sixth best university in america in, uh, in south america and like 2012 but when the crisis came like uh we have like this rich spike on on violence because people were now without jobs they had to be work to start working on, on truck trafficker system and uh, a lot of young uh, black and brown uh, uh, teenagers and, and uh, adults they were getting killed they started killing each other because of violence because of money because of drugs in 2016 18 in 2018 for example we uh, reached a really really sad mark of 10,000 homicides only in the state of Pernambuco which is like really bad we 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 had one percent of all homicides in the planet happening here and that's being fought for the last five years and we are getting uh, these numbers down but uh yeah basically when when things start getting bad here we start killing each other and well it's a it's a very la it's, it's a very uh, latin american problem it's a very pernambuco problem and but uh in the last year with the pandemic uh and with well with all that that's ha been happening we are being like really really affected especially because uh our dear president he hates the northeast because we do not vote for right-wingers like at all and he really hates us and he just uh, start cutting investments and and taking out a any piece of federal money that we could be receiving so it's been really hard but the problem the, the the biggest impacts on the economics here have been due to climate to climate change because even though um, like uh, 80 percent of the state is like a, a semi-desert is it a semi-arid region uh, we still have like rains and we still have we raise goats we have a very very strong industry uh, talking about uh cotton plantations sugarcane plantations and all of this and we are facing one of the worst droughts in our history the last rainy season that we had was in 2012 and since then 
we we used to have like 80 days of rain each year now we have 40 or 30 days so yeah, yeah it's yeah yeah it's a region that that's you know it 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 it's sort of representative of a, a perfect storm of being subject to climate change to economic disparity between rich and poor by by the pandemic and also you know from corruption and and politics and and racism you know and, and prejudice, pre yeah. prejudices against you know brown and, and black people you know it just seems, seems to have all of those things and and you can really see the impact especially with the stories that you've been yeah. been telling i know that you originally yeah. studied bi biology yeah. What, what made you turn to photography as a means of being able to bring attention to these these issues that are concerning you? Uh, when I decided to study biology, to become a biologist, I was 12. For I was like really young. And uh, in Brazil, we have like this really uh, crazy system to get you to the university. While all the universities are for free, most of them, of course, we have a private private schools, uh, you have to do a test and it's a really difficult test and everyone can do that. So normally the rich people, they have the rich kids, they have more capacity. They have more conditions to focus their lives on studying and they have, and they get like most of the, the spots on the courses. And so in Brazil, you must decide your career really, really young at a really young age. Okay, you're going to do the, the, the test when you are like 16, 17 years old, but uh, you will start studying for that when you are like 14 or 13. And you need to focus and say, okay, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a biologist. Okay, so I had to, to, in my high school, I studied to do the test for the biology school. So I, I didn't focus on history. I didn't focus on Portuguese studies. I didn't focused on a lot of studies. I, I studied mathematics, physics, chemistry, and biology on high school. That was the thing that you, you got to study because you have the first round where you have like, you used to, now it's just one, one, one round. But at my time, we had like a first round where you do like this general knowledge uh, test. And then you have the second round with the specific tests on physics, biology, chemistry, and mathematics. I always loved the environment. I always loved animals. I always loved sharks and I wanted to study them. And so I decided to become a biologist and I was in biology school. But when I got accepted, we had uh, this huge strike in all the universities of the country. And it, the, the teachers, they were on, on a strike for six months. So I couldn't get into the university for six months. I was at home. I was doing absolutely nothing. So my mom, she, she, I was uh, 70 at the time. My mom, my mom said, okay, you're going to study something, okay? You choose something to do and you're going to study, okay? Because we, we come from uh, uh, the semi-arid is like really poor in a really poor state. Okay, so <laughs> we are considered like of the poor region of the state. And I was raised on a, on a, on a house and on a family of teachers. 
And so uh, the, main, the main thing is money can't buy you knowledge, but knowledge can get you a lot of money. So if you have the opportunity to study, do that and do whatever you want to study. If, okay, you, you want to study photography, do that, study that, be a pro on that and make money from that. If you want to study biology, if you want to study whatever you want, just do that and be the best you can because uh, you will have like one shot at being at, at doing whatever you want. And so you need to be the best professional possible. I was a Boy Scout too. So I was always like, okay, we need to help the animals. We need to help the planet. We need to, I was raised on this. And so my mom said, okay, you, you have two options. You're going to study photography or you're going to get uh, another profession. And during these six months to do a course, so you can, you will no, not lose this time. So I choose a photography course, a six months photography course. And then I get into biology. But then my, my classes started and I was like, okay, now this is what I'm going to do. And then I enrolled on a sharks conservation organization that we had here. And for two and a half years, I was studying biology. I was working in a lab. I was identifying sea sponges. <laughs> and uh, and I was, <laughs> I was uh, also coordinating this shark conservation program. And I was taking photos because now I have this, I have this ability. I need to exercise it. So I had like this super zoom Fuji camera that was like really expensive for, for me to get. So I got like from my grandma, she gave me as a present from, she took from her pension. Yeah. It, at the time it was like a hundred dollars, but this is a lot of money in Brazil. <laughs> so like you can buy one month of food with that money. Oh, so yeah. yeah. So I started taking photos and then uh, my mom, she took a loan when she saw that, like that was something that I wanted to do. Okay. So now I was uh, in my second year of the university. I decided that, okay, um, I'm going to mix photography and biology. I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to work with taxonomy, which is the art of, identifying animals basically or whatever is alive so we there was a it was a place where i could use photography to to express myself and to work and it's the most educational part of biology because uh it's very accessible taxonomy magazines are not closed they are open so everyone can can see what's been discovered and i said okay this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take photos of animals. I'm going to identify them. I'm going to help people. And this is going to be amazing. And so my mom, she, in my birthday, she went to the bank. She took a loan and she bought me my first DSLR. And, you know, and it was like, yeah. So, and another thing in Brazil, you live with your parents until you are out of college. Okay. <laughs> you, we, okay. we do not, we, we, we do not leave like you guys have like this uh, this uh, living quarters in the university. The university is just like a, a building with classrooms. You go there, you go back to your house. <laughs> so I I still live with my mom at the time, and it was like really crazy. And then I I started taking photos. Then I then Brazil got the 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 protests of 2013 
because the the World Cup was coming, but we had like lots of inequalities and lots of stuff that people were not happy about, and we, we didn't want the Olymp the the Olympic Games and the the World Cup to be happening here. So the country went on fire, like just like what happened with Black Lives Matter in the United States. We started burning buildings. We started fighting the police. We had like this uh, crazy, crazy, crazy commotion uh, around the country of something that was oppressing us for a long time. And then everyone went to the streets to protest. And it was crazy. And I decided to start taking photos. And then someone saw my photos and said, we can sell that. Do you want some money from that? And I said, of course I do. And then uh, <laughs> I started selling the photos. And then one day I was like, damn, I'm... I'm not going to the classroom because I'm going to photograph that. So I sit down one day and I said, okay, I have a choice to make. Okay, I can be a researcher. I can spend the next 10 years of my life inside the laboratory studying and identifying sponges. And I can do this work that is helping people because I live in the outskirts of Recife in a low-income area. And when the World Cup came, they decided to build a stadium right near where I live. And to access this stadium, they had to make a road because it was like really, really far from, from the city. And to build that road, they, they decided that they should destroy an entire neighborhood. So more than 100 families lost their homes. They were not paid for their homes, and the government simply bulldozed everything to build a road, simply as that. To pass a two-lane road, they destroyed more than 100 houses. And I started photographing that. While I was a biology student, I have little knowledge of human rights, I had little knowledge of what was going on, but that thing upset me. So I was like, okay, this is something that I'm going to photograph because this is wrong. And I know this is wrong. And then I started working with that. Then I knew people from the, the community, some uh, NGO that was working with them. They hired me as a photographer to document the, these human rights viol violations, the preparations of the World Cup. After that, I went to Sao Paulo in Brazil the other side of the country to photograph the Olympic Games, the protests that were happening there because a lot of people from from multiple parts of the country, they went to Sao Paulo to protest because it's the most rich place of the country. So all the foreign media was there. So it was like a, uh, a natural uh, place that people decided to go. You know, it's, it was the natural way of protesting. And well, there I almost got shot by the police and a lot of stuff happened. And I, I knew that I was a journalist <laughs> at that point. <laughs> I, I said, okay, listen, I almost got shot. So that's what yeah. I, am. <laughs> yeah, but, but I, I was, I, it was something like, okay, uh, it, you know, it, it's that turning point where you, you say, okay, what I'm doing here is a lot more important than my, uh, you know, uh, self preservation. And I, I knew, I understood that I was like a gear in this huge mm -hmm. machine that would help people, that I, my work there was essential. 
So when I came back, I dropped out of biology school. I started working on a newspaper and I started to pay for a private journalism school here. And I, all the money from the newspaper went to pay for my, my fees on, the, on this college. And I, and well, and the rest is history. <laughs> it was, yeah, it's, it, it, it was like a really great transition, you know? So it, it, it happened yeah. through, it was really natural. It was not, not, was not something that I was like, okay, this is what I really want to do. It's the dream of my life to become a photojournalist or something like that. It was a consequence. If you love photojournalism and documentary photography, do yourself a favor. Check out The Curious Society. They are a member-supported nonprofit that promotes the best in photojournalism today. Along with offering grants to college students, they also produce an oversized quarterly magazine, which showcases great work from all over the world. Find out more by visiting their website at CuriousSociety.org. Though we live in a world that provides unlimited access to information, facts, and opinions, it's ironic that we absorb so much empty and unfulfilling content, especially on our electronic devices. The more we consume, it seems, the less we know. A book is an antidote to that. It, it's always been and always will be. A great book provides a gateway for seeing and understanding the world in new and different ways. That's what I always hope for when I purchase a new book of photography, and it's something I get from each book I receive from the Charcoal Book Club. These first edition monographs are special and unique titles that bring you great photography and feed your curiosity and your creative soul. It's also a flexible service, because if you don't like that month's release, you can choose another of their titles of similar value. They offer free shipping to the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. It's subsidized elsewhere. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com today, and remember to use the code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. When I look at your work, I see that a lot of it is, is made up of you know, personal projects that you've worked on very short or long, long durations. So even though you're working as a photojournalist, in, in being a photojournalist is often you're doing assignment work, which it does not, you don't get to spend a whole lot of time on it. So tell me about discovering how to make long-term commitments to, to projects that you have passion, passion about, how to make that work. Yeah. So, um, being bored, but I am bored, but I was bored. I had from a really young age to learn how to make money. So, and I to be unattached from whatever I do and to make money. So, uh, my first projects, they, they came my long term. The first one, the first big one was a project called Petcock, which is a it's basically a, a fuel used by the cement factories here in Brazil. And it's a byproduct of the oil refineries. It's, uh, it's a very toxic material. It's, uh, it's sale, sale 
it's forbidden in the United States, Canada, and a lot of countries. And the Brazilian cement factories and the cement industry, they buy that as they, they, they get petcock from the United States and Venezuela and, and North America and Europe. They get that on uh, disposal contracts. So technically, they get almost it for free because the United States and Canada and a lot of other countries, they need to get rid of the pet coke. So they, they pay these ships to take it out and to dump whatever, wherever they, they decided to do that. And so the cement factories in Brazil, they take, take these contracts and they bring it to here. And being a really toxic material, uh, pet coke, it's, uh, of course, it, it causes harm to human bodies and they in the northeast here we have a state called paraiba which is the northern neighborhood neighbor of Pernambuco, and they had like 12 cement factories in the state all of the cement factories are filled by pet coke and to restore this pet coke they decided to do that inside poor neighborhood inside the favela Right, and they did that in an open space, and right near a river. So the winds come from the river; they catch the pet coke on the the facility, and they spread it over the neighborhood. In the years right after the installation of this deposit, cancer and mal and, and you know and uh, I totally forgot the technical word, but. Uh, children being born with uh, with problems uh, skyrocketed. Birth defects yeah. or malformations. Yeah. Yes, yes, malformations. Yeah, because it's, it's the same word in Portuguese. So I was like, okay, no, this is Portuguese. This is not English. <laughs> <laughs> the malformation. But yeah, so these uh, birth defects and these malformations, they were like 200% higher. And mouth, nose, and lung cancer were also at the same height. And I, while I was an activist, I worked with Sea Shepherd Conservation Society. And Pat Koch's story and the problem, since it was near a river that was going to the sea, in a mangrove, it was a concern for them, for the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society. So they, they called me to help them to create a plan on how to do something to stop that. Because at that point, I was also a coordinator of an NGO, <laughs> a, a conservationist. So, and when they, they showed me, when uh, they took me there, and when I saw the 20 meters high piles of Petco entirely in an open space with a one, one meter and a half wall just uh, protecting the area, and I was looking at the favela, and I was looking at the football field that they have right at, at the side of the, this place. And I was looking at the children, like with really white skin that were entirely black from the, 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 the pet coke that was just in the air. I knew that I had to do something because not even in Brazil, that was new. Okay. So hmm. I said, okay, I'm going to do something. Then I came back in the, the next week and I started going there while I worked in the newspaper 
I were I I would go to the newspaper from Monday to Friday. I would get in the in a bus at Friday night. I would go to that to the to the city to João Pessoa, which is the, the name of the city in the Paraíba. I would work there Saturday and Sunday, and I would come back to Recife. I would work in the newspaper, and I did that for around one month. Then I took a vacation. And I dedicated the 30 days of my paid vacation to go there and to photograph that. I was really blessed because my mentor, he's a long-term photographer, right? He does not do like short-term assignments. And he taught me how to work on that. So he was guiding me all the way through this project. He was saying, okay, you need to focus on that. Uh, if you want to, to tell a story of a family, you cannot just go in their houses, take two portraits, do a short interview, and then go away. Because this is unrespectful with them. This is disrespectful because you are parachuting in somewhere where you don't belong and you are just feeding on their stories and you're not connecting with them. So whatever you're going to do, you need to be, to be cautious. You need to be dedicated and you need to understand what they are doing. And what's going on there? Then I, I I decided okay now I need to to look for a character for my story. And then I spent one week going all the houses, talking with social workers, with medics from the region to find this specific person that was a single mom, a black single mom. She had uh, lung problems. Her daughter had lung problems. They would go to the hospital multiple times a week, but uh, the summit companies, they organize it with the local government. So the specific areas where the, the, the most affected people lived were not covered by public health anymore. So, of course, Brazil, we have public health. So if you, if you, if you are sick, you can go to the hospital, you're going to be attended, you're going to be aided, and you're going to get home and for free, but these people would not be recorded. So uh, the numbers would not exist because they were not covered by any uh, community clinic. Okay, because to, for your, if you have a disease like cancer, for it to be recorded in the official statistics, it, you have to be uh, attended by private hospital or a private clinic or a community clinic. But if your community is not attended by a clinic, your disease does not exist. And welcome to Latin America. This is how we do stuff here. And so the cement factories, they basically moved the, the, the community clinic two streets over. Like, and that made uh, around 200 households to be uncovered from, from the clinic. From, you know. So she was uncovered. She had the, this crazy story. And uh, she was really a fact. And I stayed an entire day with them. I was a visit there. I arranged with her and with a social worker. I said, listen, I want to tell you a story. I need to understand how you live. I need to understand who you are. I need to understand your relationship with your daughter. I need to understand whatever happens with inside your home when you are living with this. And so I, I arrived at her house uh, at 8 a.m. And I started talking with her, eating, drinking water, drinking coffee. We watched 
a novella together. We we did everything she, she usually does. And while that, I would take the photos. Her routine was really sad because she needed to use a nebulizer like three times a day because her lungs would not would simply not function. And her daughter would also need that. So they, they would use the nebulizer with the daughter in her lap and she would take one breath in the nebulizer and then she's gonna give one breath to her, her daughter. Then she would take another one, then she would give another one to her daughter. And that would happen multiple times a day. By doing that, I understood that I'm not a photojournalist. I'm a journalist who tells stories with photography, right? Uh, it's a, yes, that's the concept of a photojournalist. But uh, I think it, this is something that uh, there's a Brazilian photographer called it Humberto. Uh, oh my God, Luiz Humberto. He says that. He says, I'm not a photojournalist, I'm a journalist. And that becomes a photojournalist when I decide to, to take photos. But I'm above all, I'm a storyteller, right? I believe that, that that's the, the best description, a storyteller. Because I, I understood that to tell a story, you, you don't need to be yourself. Our, our stories and our, our coverage, they are not about ourselves. They are about the people we are talking about. If we can't give these people as much voice as we can, this story will be a lot better. So I would usually, since that this coverage, I would choose one or two two characters and I would tell a story about them. So so tell me how that how that lesson and what you've learned from other assignments um, have are. are is shaping what you're doing now with your with your scorched earth uh, project. Yeah, yeah. So uh, basically, to understand that uh, it's the impacted beings can it it can be animals, it can be trees, it can be people. The ones who are impacted by whatever is going on, they are the ones that should be telling the story. And scorched earth, it's a project to show how the 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 Bolsonaro era is completely destroying the Amazon region, right? So the Amazon region is huge. It's across nine states almost in Brazil. And we have uh, three different biomes, right? right? When I, if I tell you about the Amazon, you will probably think about the rainforest, right? Like tall trees, really dense jungle, uh, jaguars, crocodiles, piranhas in the river, but uh, the Amazon region is composed by three main biomes. We have the rainforest, we have the savanna of the Cerrado, and we have the Pantanal wetlands in the south border of the Amazon. And these three biomes, they are all being destroyed at the same uh, rate, and mostly after Bolsonaro came to power. What's going on is that Bolsonaro believes that uh, indigenous people should not have rights or land. In Brazil, we have something called quilombos, which is basically communities that, that were formed by slaves that escaped the, the farms or whatever they were in, enslaved. And they created this really in these really remote areas, the quilombos, and which are in these communities, they still exist today. And they are normally uh, rural communities, 
based on farming and community uh, subsistence. Okay, and Bolsonaro decided that uh, no one should have rights to land in Brazil besides the big farmers. And the big farmers, they said, okay, we totally agree with you. So we're going to start burning everything because if uh, this land is is tortured, is 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 scorched, it cannot have it. It cannot be used by the indigenous community or by the quilombolas, and then we can't farm on it because we can't say that that was unproductive land, and we are now giving it a purpose. So they started burning the Amazon rainforest, the savan the Cerrado savannas and the Pantanal wetlands. In, 2000, in 2020, last year, we have in only one state more than 67,000 wildfires in one year. And uh, like 95% of all of that is human cost. And to cover that and to understand that, I need to be there. I need to be immersed on it because uh, like in, in 2019, Lots of foreign phot photographers and photojournalists and journalists in general, they came here, they spent one week uh, taking photos of the fires, they came back. And if I ask you, if you know what happened in 2019, during all the commotion about the Amazon fires, you would probably have no idea. You're going to say, no, yeah, it was burning, right? But it's not anymore because no one's talking about that again. And it's not happening. And, you know, it's still happening and it's worse, <laughs> right? So uh, actually this year we have, uh, we, we reached the same amount of fires that we had last year in June. So at, at the, the sixth month of the year, we already burned everything that we burned in the last year. And we probably be burning more ne uh, next year because next year is election year. And so shit will happen, sorry. Uh, but <laughs> that that will happen here. So when I decided to 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 tell these stories, when I decided to cover this issue, I was moved by the and understanding that it was a, a gigantic region that I would not be able to to cover the entirety of the of that. It would not be possible for me to 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 cover all nine states to go from the border with Venezuela to the border with Paraguay and do that, it's human impossible, okay? Unless I am like, I don't know, Sebastian Salgado, who is a, almost a millionaire, but I can do that. So I said, okay, I need to focus on uh, three main things. First, first of all, I need, I need to understand what I'm going to tell. Okay, the Amazon is burning. I can't, if I just keep repeating that the Amazon is burning, I'm not telling a story, right? I'm giving. My mentor, when in, in my, my first days, he said to me, you should not write a sign if you can write a chronicle. And photojournalism, mm. I, I need to approach photojournalism not as like uh, making signs and showing to people, hey, listen, this is happening. I need to write a chronicle, a visual chronicle. And I need to to choose uh, my characters, I need to choose the subject of what I'm writing about, and I need to choose the environment, and these need to all be planted, and these need to all be, be, be harmonic, so the people that is getting 
these informations, they can't understand what's happening. Uh, so I, I understood that I had to, to be talking about how they are impacting the life in the region and the wildlife in the region because the inhabitants of these this three areas, the rainforest, the Cerrado, and the Pantanal wetlands are the animals. We have like really sparse human settlements alongside the, the, the region, but the animals and the plants are the most affected. So to understand that, I need to, to go there and I need to, I need to show the impacts. In 2019, I went there and I said, okay, first thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, be immersed on the people fighting the fires. So I followed these, uh, I call them Navy SEALs of wildfires because they are like, they are firefighters that they pass through this indoctrination program of 60 days, which they train with the special operations from the army and they become like Navy SEALs. And they fight these humongous wildfires with four-man crews. So it's crazy. They are like highly trained men and women. And uh, I spent 10 days with them. So I spent 10 days eating with them, sleeping with them, crammed inside a, 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 an SUV going up and down the Cerrado Savannas fighting this one fire. And this one fire was human-caused by a farmer and it destroyed not only the farms around it, around the, its origin, but also a natural reserve. So that gave me the perfect introduction to what was about to going down, because I dedicated these ten days and my by being there, and I, I was able to show the the farms burning. I was able to show the people preparing to 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 fight the fires. And I was able to understand what is a wildfire because I, I hadn't this knowledge at the time. Then last year I was planning before the pandemic to go to the 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 south region, to the Pantanal, to do an immersion on the the volunteers, on the veterinarians, the biologists that went they, they go to the region to rescue the animals. Because now I have the the first victims of the fires, which are the animals and the trees and the environment. And to do that, I need to understand the people that are doing that. I need to understand uh, what's going on. But the pandemic came and I did a documentary on audio for a, a local venue here in Brazil about environment. Uh, because I, I, I knew that I could not just be sitting at my home without working on that. If I couldn't be there physically uh, because of the pandemic, I would do that uh, virtually. And this year, I decided to continue on that work and to show the efforts of animal rescue to, to, you know, to, to restart from where I, I left. And then I went to the Pantanal wetlands. I followed during another 10 days. And believe me, I, I did not plan on the 10 days. It's two cycles of 10 days. It was 10 days with the firefighters. Now it's 10 days with the, the veterinarians. They're from the group for, res for animal rescue in, in, in disasters. Because again, I need to understand who I was covering. So I slept with them, eat with them. You know, I'm embedded 24 hours with them. So I can understand and I, uh, I can know 
who I'm photographing and I can know what I want to, to show what I want to tell. So, well, yeah. You wanted to go back to something you said, you said earlier about your career and in terms of that from very young, you kind of understood how to make money. And one of the things about yeah. personal projects is that they're self-funded largely. You know, you have yeah. a passion about something. It's not like someone is giving you an assignment and giving you money to go do it. It's not like the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. So when, when you're working on these projects, especially uh, um, th on this one, how, how are you going to be able to turn that into income? You know, uh, or, or how have you done it with some of the other stories that you've done in terms of finding a market for the stories you're trying to tell? Yeah, uh, in 2016, uh, the Pet Coke story was, it was planned to be published by National Geographic Brazil. And it was, but sadly, the publisher that published, we, ha we had like a different magazine in Brazil, uh, which mixed uh, the National Geographic magazine international stuff with Brazilian stuff. And it, we had like a 50-50 space inside the magazine for Brazilian photographers. But the publisher uh, went bankrupt and they uh, gave it back to Disney and to Fox at the time. I had to find some place else to, to, to do that. Most of the time when I'm working, I am working f to be able to pay for the next story that I'm going to do. Basically, I pay my bills and whatever I, I, can, I, can, I get, I'm going to pay for my next trip. I, I work... Uh, as a, a, a video reporter for the uh, Germany's uh, national public broadcaster, the Deutsche Welle. Well, we've been working together since 2016, covering human rights and uh, environment. Most of the time, I, I, I would work side gigs, like I'm going to teach something, I'm going to give a photography class, I'm going to give a... a backup classes for students like they need to to improve their english or biology or history whatever they, they need i'm gonna teach them high school students but most of the time i'm gonna i'm gonna you know i'm a photographer but i'm also a videographer and if shooting video of many small stories will help me to pay my bills and to prepare and to do these stories i'm gonna do that so I work a lot as a videographer for the, the Germany public uh, broadcaster. Right now, this is my main uh, source of income. So I would do three or four stories a month for them about environment and uh, human rights for the television and for the social media platforms. And that will help me to pay for most of my projects. Uh, but with the pandemic, I had to isolate myself because uh, my family, they are in a very, very, very fragile place during the pandemic. They are all, in, they are all uh, risk groups. <laughs> so I had to, to stay with them, to help them. So I said, okay, I'm not going to work. And I had a lot of money saved because I was planning on doing that. I was... To 2020 was the year of big changes in my life. I was moving to Argentina. I was going to work in a newspaper there. I was going to, to uh, go back to biology school just to have a diploma. And, you know, in a, well, the pandemic came. My, my, these plans were postponed. 
and all the money I had saved, I used last year at my family to, you know, just to be well during the pandemic. I decided to do a crowdfunding because in, in 2019, I crowdfunded like uh, $1,000 to, to go to the, the, the first part. And I said, okay, $1 is five reais, Brazilian reais, which is our, our currency. $1,000, it's a lot of money in Brazilian currency and we, we can pay it for, uh, for a lot of stuff. And uh, this time I said, okay, uh, I need to, to, to raise more because I want to stay more time. I want to stay uh, there for uh, one month. And I decided, I said, okay, I'm going to try to crowdfund for $3,000. I mean, crowdfunding is an amazing way that we found today of doing stuff, right? Uh, my book, São Francisco, which is a, a, a comic book that mixes comics and photography, uh, telling stories about this, uh, about the Brazilian uh, semi-arid about my region where i came from uh it was crowdfunded so in, in brazil so it, yeah but it was a different model it was technically a pre-sale because everyone who donated above a certain uh, amount of money would get the book so it, it was another model but yeah i i tried a lot of grants but like 19 percent of the grants they do not cover anyone from outside the united states I mean, th there are some grants that if I live in the United States, I can, I can, I can participate in that to cover places outside the United States. But if I'm from outside the United States, they would not give me the money. And I totally get it because they get like tax deduction from, from these grants. They are not charity. They are just rich people trying to get more rich. But <laughs> uh, I, I said, okay, that, that, the, the, I need to, to rely on the community. And I got like this amazing, amazing, amazing response. Like lots well, of people. I'm glad to be able to, to share yeah. your story and, and help support <laughs> your latest effort. Yeah. Because yeah, I, I really commend you for the dedication that you, 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 with which you make your work happen. So that's, that's great. Thanks. 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 Well, my last question is something that I ask for each guest and I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore it. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? And Andre Vieira. I don't know if, if he was, I, I mean, we have like, we have like 500 episodes. I haven't listened to all the 500. I listened to a lot and I haven't seen his name in any of them. So Andre Vieira, he's my mentor. He's like this amazing photographer from Brazil. He deviates a lot from the Brazilian vices on photojournalism and on photography. And he's an amazing human being and an amazing photographer. And I, I think listening to him would be amazing for anyone who listens to, to this podcast. <laughs> well, thank <laughs> you for that. And thank you for making yeah. time for me today. I really, I really do appreciate it. No, I'm, I'm really happy. I'm really happy to, to, to be able to talk to, about this project and to be able to talk about photography. I, I can be like uh, really, really, really enthusiastic about what I do, but I really love what I do and I love to talk about it. <laughs> well, that, that comes across both in, in you talking today and in the work. So keep it up. Thanks. I have achieved 
remarkable breakthroughs in my photography when I made the simple choice just to play. Instead of trying to make a great picture, I simply experimented, tried something different, and saw what could happen. This was easy to do whenever I used a new piece of equipment that I'd never used before. It was always a perfect excuse to get into the creative sandbox again. LensRentals.com provides the means for you to do just that, with a vast selection of lenses, cameras, and accessories for you to rent and play with. They offer a straightforward way to receive and return anything you want for an affordable and reasonable price. Check out their inventory and save 10% on your first order when you sign up for their newsletter at LensRentals.com forward slash newsletter. And thanks to all of you who continue to support the Candor Frame financially. Your contributions, both big and small, make a massive difference for us. If you haven't become a Patreon supporter yet, it's easy to do. You can do that by contributing $5, $10, $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash the frame. Just $5 a month from you makes a huge difference. Thank you so much for your continued support. Thanks to Joao for joining us. Find out more about Joao and his work by visiting his website, joaoveloso.com. And remember to check out the Curious Society at curioussociety.org. I received the first issue of their magazine, which you can purchase today, even without a membership. If you want just a taste of the great work you'll be helping to support, that would be a great start. Your purchase will not only thrill you, but you'll be contributing to an organization and creatives that are deserving of your interest and your support. Your thoughts and feelings about this show matter. If you haven't already, please write a review on Apple Podcasts or any service you use to listen to podcasts. It helps us to stand out among the many thousands of podcasts that are out there. Your voice makes a huge difference. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or make a one-time or recurring donation via PayPal. Thanks to Sinbit Set, Juan Rodriguez, Maurice Ballinger, and Raven Agren for their recent contributions. Your help is very much appreciated. We also provide a series of ebooks on photography available for purchase on our website. It's my way of sharing my experience and knowledge in another way for you to support the show. And if you can't find every episode of the show on whatever service you listen to podcasts, download the Candid Frame app available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candor Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is the candid frame.